The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Today in our study through the book of Judges, uh, we come to one of the most enigmatic and moving stories that is found in all of the book. We will find the nation of Israel in the throes of deep, complete apostasy. They have fallen away from God, forgotten God, chased after other gods, and are suffering the severe consequences for their rebellion. The downward spiral that we've observed in the book of Judges from the beginning of that era has brought the moral and spiritual life of the nation to a new low in the text that is before us this morning. Jephthah is the judge that the Lord raises up to deliver Israel at this particular time. But his actions in doing so raise some of the most serious moral questions in the book. His story is a a moving story. It is a story that even haunts us at times because of one decision that he made that had consequences not for his immediate family only, but for his future generations that could have come had he not made that decision. Our text today is found in Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 12, verse 15. It's found on pages 210 through 213 in the Bibles that are provided for you. encourage you to take a copy of God's Word open it to the place we're going to be studying this morning because if you don't do so, we're going to be going back and forth through this passage and you're likely to get lost. If you're not familiar reading a Bible, looking at a Bible, the big numbers on the pages are chapter divisions and the little number on the pages, those are verse divisions. And so I'll be referring to verse number or chapter and verse number and when I do so, you'll know what I'm talking about so that you can follow along as we work our way through this passage. The main point that I want us to see from this section of the book of Judges this morning is this, that God saves despicable people through a despised Savior. He saves despicable people through a despised Savior. Let me begin reading at verse 6 of chapter 10, just a few verses to get this portion of our text before us from Judges 10, verse 6. Hear God's word read aloud. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Manites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord and became impatient and, so, and served the Lord. And he became impatient 
over the mystery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. The theme for this first section of our study this morning is found in verses 11 through 13, where we see God himself using the word saved. The people need to be saved. Three times he reminds the Israelites of what we has, he has done for them in the past by saving them from previous enemies, but then he also uses the word to cast some doubt over whether or not he will do it for them again now when they're under distress. The need for salvation in this section is clearly pronounced. We see it in verses 6 through 10. For 18 years, the people have been crushed and oppressed, verse 8 says, by the Ammonites and the Philistines. Chapters 10 through 12 in Judges will focus upon the Ammonite oppression. Chapters 13 through 16 will focus upon the Philistine oppression. They are suffering this oppression because of the Lord's anger against them. He is the one who sold them into the hands of their enemies. Verse 7 says that specifically. And God's anger has been provoked against them because of their sevenfold rebellion. Did you hear that? Look again at the way it's described. He says, they've turned away from the Lord to serve the Baals, the Astra, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, of Moab, the Ammonites, and the Philistines. This pervasive, persistent apostasy has caused God to be angry at his people and to deliver them up to their enemies. They've become so enamored of the gods of their neighbors that they've all but forgotten the God of their fathers. So God unleashed the Ammonites on them for 18 years until, as verse 9 says, they became severely distressed. Now, as we have seen in the pattern of Judges thus far, the people get into dire straits, and what do they do? They begin to cry out. They begin to make known their misery to the Lord in the way they express themselves. Verse 10, they finally call upon the Lord. And what have we seen thus far in our study of Judges? When they cry out to the Lord, the Lord responds and raises up a deliverer to save them, right? But what does he do this time? He doesn't respond in the typical way, but he responds to them in an unprecedented way, a way that for them, no doubt, was unexpected. We see in verses 10 through 14 through his response that the provision of salvation is denounced. God himself raises the specter that it won't happen. In the face of their sevenfold rebellion, God reminds them in verses 11 and 12 of his sevenfold salvation. How he has acted in the past to deliver them from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Manites. And then in verses 13 and 14, he speaks some terrifying words. But they are words of truth. And they are words of justice. Verse 13. Yet, despite my salvation, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. And look at what he says to them next. Go cry to the gods whom you have chosen. You want those gods, let those gods save you. You've made your choice, then look for help from the gods you've chosen. Now this might strike us as somewhat harsh or severe, but his words are true. And his words are very instructive. The Ammonites had previously oppressed Israel. You can read it in Judges 3 verse 13. Ehud was raised up at that time to deliver them from that particular oppression. 
But now, here they are back worshiping the very gods of their oppressors. This shows us something about both the insanity of sin and the danger of sin. Whatever you live for, above God, before God, becomes to you a false God and an idol. Whether that's wealth, pleasure, education, popularity, approval, children, grandchildren, status, ease, or any one of a thousand other possibilities. These things can become idols in our hearts when we allow them to become more important to us than the true and living God who has revealed himself to us, having created us for himself. The unalterable truth about idols is that while they will convincingly promise to give you life, they inevitably deliver you to death. They promise, pursue me, you'll have what you want, what you really need. And the delivery is death, taking you away from the God who alone gives life. Idols always promise freedom. They always lead us into slavery. I mean, brothers and sisters, haven't you found that to be true in your own life? Even good things that you begin to treat as ultimate things above God in the pursuit of them, if you attain them, you discover this is not what I envisioned. In 2007, on his way to leading the New England Patriots to the Super Bowl yet again, Tom Brady gave an interview to 60 Minutes. They were on their way to a record-setting, still stands today, 18-0 season. Brady had been named, as their quarterback, had been named the MVP of the National Football League. He had been named the Associated Press Male Athlete of the Year. He had won three Super Bowls already. In this interview, he asked this question of the interviewer. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? He said, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. When the interviewer asked him, so what's the answer? Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. As far as I know, Tom Brady has still not found the answer. But if you keep up with the NFL, you know last year he was found guilty of deflating footballs, having them deflated so that he could grip them better to make passes better. Why? Because he's still pursuing the very thing that by his own admission he knows can't satisfy. What is that? It's insanity. And that's the way it is with idols. We go after them and we think, if I only do this, if I only reach this, if I only have this, and then either we don't reach it, we think we've got to do more, or we do reach it, we think it's still not enough, got to have more. It's insane. It's like a goal that you see out in the distance. You say, I've got to get to the end of the street. And so you, you go out in the street and you, you set up a treadmill and you start running. And you look, you say, I'm not making very much progress. I know, I need to run faster. <laughs> you just run faster. And the faster you run, you're still not getting what you think it is that you will have if you exert all your energy on it. That's the way idolatry works. We see it clearly in the Israelites here in Judges. And if you're like me, you're tempted to stand in judgment on them and just dismiss them as foolish, insensible people returning to the very idols that had previously enslaved them and wrecked their lives over and over and over. Yet, brothers and sisters, friends, if we're honest, don't we have to admit 
we've done the exact same thing. Held this up, thought, if only I have this experience, if only I can get this, it's going to be better, it's going to be right, it's going to be good, all the while neglecting God, assuming God, keeping God in a place that's not preeminent in our lives. And we keep returning to that same folly, pursuing that which can never satisfy. When we pursue our idols and try to make our lives work without Jesus Christ being the center of our lives, the more we succeed, the more we become enslaved. Until, hopefully, at some point, in your distress, you might cry out to the Lord. You might even admit to the Lord, I've just been on the wrong path. I've blown it like they did in verse 10. And yet, like them too often, our interest is not really in having God be restored to us in the place of priority. Our interest is being relieved of distress. We don't even really want God. We want what God can do. We don't want Him. We want His. We want to, don't want to be free from sin. We want to be free from the consequences of sin. And God sees through this. That's why He responds the way that He does to these Israelites. Go cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you. What's God saying? He says, I'm not going to be used. God says, I'm not a tool for you to pull out in order to get what you think you want. He's a God who's worthy of our utmost wholehearted devotion. So immediately after denouncing any kind of automatic provision of salvation in his mercy and grace, we read in verses 15 and 16 of the possibility of salvation. He, he leaves the door open. He shows us a hint that reveals there's mercy still. What we see in these verses, in verse 15, when God responds to his people this way, they respond with an expressed brokenness. Look, this is different than what they'd said previously. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only deliver us this day. In other words, we, we're not going to play games with you anymore. We lay our lives out before you. Whatever you want, whatever you say. An expressed brokenness. It's followed by a practical repentance. Verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. But what is most glorious, what's the brightest part of this portion of the story is God's response to that, which is divine mercy. Look at the last part of 16. And he, that is God, became impatient over the misery of Israel. I like the way the New American Standard renders this portion. It says, he could bear the misery of Israel no more. See, in this passage, God gives voice not only to his threat, he also reveals his heart. He's a God of incredible mercy. These are his covenant people. They bear his name. He's sworn to be their God. He's sworn to keep them his people. Their suffering and misery lead him to act on their behalf. Brothers and sisters, we are always under obligation to turn away from sin and to live in submission to God's revealed will. But let us never fall into the trap of thinking that our repentance and obedience in some way extracts mercy and favor from God. We don't wrench it out of him. God is for us because he is our God. He loves us because he is love. He shows mercy because he is merciful. He keeps his promises because he is faithful. All the blessings we have from God are because of God, not because of us. This is what he's showing to his people here. All praise for every blessing goes to God. One of the great problems that we have is misconstruing the nature of God in our thoughts. Forgetting what he's truly like. We've seen this time and again in the story of Judges as we worked our way through it. We're going to see it again this morning in Jephthah. But the problem of misconstruing what God's really like 
isn't simply a problem of the ancient people of God. We see it today, don't we? God demonstrates his own love for us by giving up his one and only son to save us. He didn't spare Jesus Christ. He sent his son from heaven to become a man, to die on the cross for our sins. The son of his love came to rescue us. And if you know Christ, if you're trusting Christ, brother, sister, the love that God has for you in Christ is unbreakable. You can know that he has loved you with an everlasting love, that that love will never end. You can know on your worst day when everything seems to be against you, there is a God in heaven who loves you, who's working for your eternal welfare. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that. If you're not trusting Christ, you will never experience this love from this God outside of Christ. And my appeal to you today is to come and trust Christ now. Now, hearing his word set before you, call upon this God who gave up his son for sinners and ask him to reveal Christ to you, to save you, that you too might know this eternal love. God cares for his own. He will fulfill every purpose that he has for his own, even though his own are undeserving sinners. Because God is moved with compassion for his people, he raises up another deliverer for them. His people need to be saved. But the second thing I want us to see from our passage is that the man who saves them is a despised man. He's a despised man. That's what chapter 11 is about. The Ammonites are about to attack, attack Israel again. Verse 17 of chapter 10. Their homeland is on the east side of the Jordan River. Most of the promised land is on the west side. They are in the northern portion of that, that section that belonged to the promised land known as Gilead in this day. They're just north of there. That's their homeland. But they had attacked Gilead, and so they've taken up some residence in the hill country of Gilead. They've also made raids across the Jordan River into the regions of Judah and Ephraim and Benjamin. Jephthah was a Gileadite. Gileadite. He was a son of a man who himself was named Gilead. And that man had sex with a prostitute and impregnated her. And Jephthah was the result of that pregnancy. Look at verses 1 through 4. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in your father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So here he is. Son of a prostitute, disinherited by his family because his brothers didn't want him to get any of the family money. Through no fault of his own, he's an outcast. He runs with a rough crowd, a band of gangsters. He's known as a man who's a mighty warrior. So the Gileadites recruit him to help them in the same way that the Israelites tried to recruit God to help them in the face of oppression. It's interesting, you read this next section, you'll see parallels to what we read in chapter 10 with how the Israelites called upon God and how now this section of the Israelites, the Gileadites, call upon Jephthah. I want you to follow along as I read it. Note the parallels, note the parallels, chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. So there it is. The Israelites called out to God. And now here we find the Gileadites calling out to Jephthah. We need help. We're being oppressed. Help us. Verse 7. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me? And drive me out of my father's house. 
Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? In other words, oh, really? You want me? Me? The man that you wouldn't let live with you? Now you want me? Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. See what's going on here? They want to use him. They want to use him. He refuses to be used, but he does agree to fight in their behalf if they will agree to make him their leader. We learned something already about Jephthah in his negotiation skills. It's going to be something that ultimately becomes his downfall. What does he do immediately after becoming the leader of the Gileadites? Well, he goes and negotiates with the Ammonites their king, and their forces that are mounted against them. In verses 12 through 28, you see in verse 12, he asks the Ammonites why they are attacking his land. Listen to the way he puts it. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? Verse 13, king sends a response. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land. From the Arnon to the Jabbok, talking about rivers, and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Well, Jephthah claims the land is his. The king of Ammon claims the land is rightly his and says, you Israelites stole it from me, from my people, years ago. Well, Jephthah refutes the arguments of the Ammonites, and he does so, refutes the contention by giving three arguments. Three arguments. I want to show you his thesis and his conclusion, and then go back and look at the three arguments to show how he supports his thesis and works to a conclusion. You young people that are still in high school, you could learn a lesson from Jephthah here about how to compose a good paper, how to compose a good argument. Verse 15, his thesis is this. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. He's refuting the king's claim. Verse 27, look at his conclusion. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Now, in between his thesis and his conclusion, there are three arguments. The first is the historical argument. It's found in verses 16 through 22. What does he do here? He recounts from Israelite history the movements of the people as Moses led them out of Egypt through the wilderness toward the land of promise as it's recorded in Numbers 21 and 22, Deuteronomy 2. And then he explains that the Ammonites have never possessed the land that is now occupied by Gilead between those two rivers that the king of Gilead said, this belongs to me. He says, you've never had this land. He reminds them that the reason that Israel has this land east of the Jordan, is because when Moses led them through, he first appealed to the Edomites and said, can we pass through your land? They said, no. He then appealed to the Amorites and said, can we pass through your land? They said, no. And so then he, he goes around their land. He makes a similar appeal to the king of Sion, asking if Sion will allow them to pass through his land. Sion just says, I'm going to attack you. So Sion declares war upon them, and the Israelites defeat him. And so they said, okay, to the victor go the spoils. Not only will we pass through your land now, we'll possess your land now, because you declared war upon us and lost. So historically, the Ammonites were simply wrong. They were wrong in their understanding of how the boundaries were set in that ancient land. But then he goes Jephthah goes to a theological argument, a theological argument. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and you are to take 
And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. In other words, he says, Yahweh gave us this land. The God of covenant gave us this land. Be satisfied with whatever your false God gave you. You ought to just take what your God does for you. We're going to take what our God does for us. Theologically, he is saying, you're wrong. If you don't like the boundaries where they are, take it up with your false God. Or better yet, take it up with our true God. Because he's the one that established these boundaries for us. So he gives a historical argument. He gives a theological argument. The third argument is from legal precedent. Legal precedent. He looks at verse 25, 26, 27. He, he appeals to history again, and he says, Balak, <coughs> excuse me, king of Moab, did not try to dispossess the Israelites over 300 years ago. And if you know the story from the book of Numbers, Balak wanted to, even hired a prophet, try to get Israelites cursed, but the prophet couldn't do it. So Balak wanted to, but even then he withstood his desires because he would not act to dispossess them. Jephthah goes on, for the last 300 years, the land has been inhabited by the Israelites. So he's saying, why haven't you made this argument before now? Why haven't you tried to dispossess us now for 300 years? Why are you doing it now? He's saying legal precedent. This has been the way it has been for 300 years. Well, as impressive as you or I might find these arguments to be, and I do think they are impressive, the king of Ammon was not impressed. And so he decides simply to declare war. Verse 28 says, he did not listen to Jephthah's attempts to negotiate. So the war ensues. We don't have details given to us about how that war took place. What we do find in verses 29, 32, and 33, chapter 11, is that Jephthah led the armies of Israel to be victorious against the armies of Ammon. Verse 29 says, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. He marches against Ammon, defeats their army. Verse 33 makes that statement. The Ammonites were dealt a great blow, and they were subdued before the people of Israel. Again, though the details are not spelled out, it's very obvious this was a smashing success in terms of a military victory. Think about what's happened here. From a disinherited, illegitimate son of a prostitute, Jephthah's now become the conquering judge of Israel. He is indeed an unlikely savior of this undesirable people. People need salvation. Man appointed to save them is despised. But our text goes on to show, thirdly, both the Savior and his salvation are deeply flawed. Deeply flawed. In this next section, we find the most poignant part of the story. Jephthah makes a vow, a tragic, horrific, foolish vow. And then he keeps it. Beginning in verse 29, it's as if the camera zooms in and we suddenly begin to get the story in slow motion to show us this tragic scene. Before he goes to war, Jephthah goes back to his hometown, to his house, and he makes a vow, a vow that when he returns victorious, he keeps. Verses 31 and 30 and 31 express the vow to us. Let me read it. Verse 30, chapter 11. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. He wants to ensure victory in the way that he thinks is best. So he negotiates with God, bargains with God. And then victory happens. He returns victorious. Verse 34 begins the tragic scene. Then Jephthah came home to his home at Mitzpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. Put the scene in your mind. The text says it's his only child. Dad's victorious. He's done it. Gilead's saved. The enemies are defeated. I'm going to go welcome my dad. I'm going to express my delight and praise 
for his exploits. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. This is it. His lineage dies off with her. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, go. And then he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite for four days in the year. What a tragic scene. What a horrific scene. I want to ask four questions of Jephthah's vow and keeping of this vow in order that we might gain some clarity. The first question is this. What did Jephthah actually mean? When he vowed to the Lord. What is his actual vow? There are some who say that Jephthah didn't actually vow to offer up as a blood sacrifice. The first thing that came out of the house of his family. That he wasn't actually saying whoever comes out of the door. I'm going to offer up as a blood sacrifice. The, the word for blood sacrifice can be translated, in some places it is, not often, as total consecration, total devotion. And so there are some that say, well, what Jephthah is saying is he's just going to totally devote whatever comes out of his house first. There are others that say, well, Jephthah was expecting an animal to come out. Well, there's nothing at all in antiquity that would suggest that to be an expectation of an ancient warrior. Animals didn't live in their houses. The dogs weren't dogs like we have today. They're happy when you get home. The cows and the camels wouldn't come out to express their joy at your return. So there's nothing to support that either. Those who believe that this was not really a dedication, a promise to dedicate to a blood sacrifice, argue that what he was offering to God in vow is to dedicate whatever family member came out to the complete service of the Lord in some temple or some shrine that would be in some way connected with Yahweh. I think... That is not what's being said here. There are objections that can be brought against that position. The first is simply it's not the most natural reading of the word. It can mean that. It's not the simplest reading. Whenever you can find the simplest reading of the scripture, you ought to always take it. And the simplest reading of this word as it's used in the Old Testament is burnt offering. But secondly, if that's the case, then how do you explain the lament of Jephthah when his daughter comes out the door why such horrible grief if you're just going to dedicate a child to the service of the Lord there ought to be at least some joy in that I would think and yet he rips his clothes he's filled with grief in verse 35 here's what I read the text to mean he did actually vow to sacrifice as a burnt offering the first person to come out of the house to greet him upon his victorious return from battle it's a horrible conclusion to come to. And yet it's one I do not see being free to avoid from simply reading the text. So that raises a second question, of course. Why in the world would he make such a vow? What is going on in this man's head that would make him think that's a good idea? He had the Old Testament scriptures, at least the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And he was clearly familiar with them. Those first five books very clearly forbid human sacrifice. There are various references to forbid this. Deuteronomy 18.10 is simply one. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. We know that Jephthah was familiar with the books of Moses because of the way that he argued with the king of Ammonite, the Ammonite king. 
He appeals to the historical record found in Deuteronomy and Numbers in order to make his historical and theological cases with him. So he's aware of these scriptures. Why in the world would he make this vow? It seems to me that he makes this vow out of his own self-interest and his own ignorance. Jephthah, as we have seen, was a negotiator. He convinced his kinsmen to make him their leader. He tried to convince the Ammonite king not to fight against the armies of Israel. And now, in this vow, he's trying to bargain with God to protect his own self-interest once again. In addition to that, he has a very warped, diminished, defective view of the nature of the God to whom he speaks. He's ignorant, not completely of God, but very significantly. In his views of worshiping the true God, he had been deeply canonized, influenced by pagan ideas and pagan philosophies and pagan religions that surrounded him and that had infiltrated the nation of Israel. Remember, verse 3 of chapter 11 says he grew up in the land of Tob. It had already been infiltrated by Ammonites. He grew up surrounded by worthless fellows. He grew up in a time when, as chapter 10, verse 6 reminds us, the people of Israel had again rejected the Lord and served not just one pagan god, but seven pagan gods. This was what characterized their religion. Child sacrifices were common in ancient Canaanite religions. I believe what we see in our text is the fruit of Jephthah becoming desensitized to such violence, having unthinkingly breathed the air of his day for so long that it just seemed natural for him to bargain with God, make a vow to God, to offer up as a blood sacrifice the first person that comes out of his household, if by doing so he can ensure his own life in battle and victory of his army in battle. He's trying to get God to do for him what he wants God to do. I believe that that's why he made the vow. A third question, though, comes, okay, why in the world did he keep that vow? If this is right, what he meant, this is right, why he did it, why did he keep it? Again, he shows in keeping the vow how much more powerful the influence of the world was on his thinking than the influence of God's word. Because if you read in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, there is a way to get out of a bad vow. You make a bad vow under the law of Moses, there's a way to acknowledge this is a bad vow. You need to get out of it. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 27 specifically gives instructions for making bad vows regarding people and what you have to pay, 30 shekels, and you can undo the bad vow that you made regarding people. That's what the word says. What's the world say? Canaanite world. You made a vow to Baal? You make a vow to Asherah? You make a vow, vow, vow to the God that we know and worship? You keep that vow no matter what. He'll get you if you don't. So he's influenced more by Canaanite thinking than he is the word of God. And again, it reveals greater concern for himself and his future than he does even for his own daughter. His own daughter. I mean, I try to think of this as a father. And I, I'm not above what Jephthah did at all. I don't mean to suggest that. But I, I think, God, what would it be? What, what, how far gone would I have to be to make such a vow and then in making such a vow to see the reality of it, my daughter coming out of the house and realize, that means i got to sacrifice her. Wouldn't I choose rather to sacrifice myself or take whatever consequences there are not to keep the vow? But he kept it. So what are we to make of this? That's the fourth question. What are we to make of this? Well, I'm going to talk more about it in a few minutes. Two things right now. First thing, it's a clear reminder. God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. 
Jephthah is a very crooked stick. God delivered his people with a very flawed Savior. Secondly, the best of men are men at best, and men at their best are capable of atrocious crimes. Men at their best, capable of atrocious crimes. But it isn't just that Jephthah is flawed in this scene. The salvation that he accomplishes, the victory that he wins, is not without its problems and consequences as well. We see in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12, the Ephraimites again act ignorantly. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll recall perhaps the Ephraimites seem to have a pattern of being arrogant. Back in chapter 8, after Gideon won victory, they come to Gideon and say, wait, why didn't you let us fight too? Who do you think you are? We're the Ephraimites. Of course, Gideon was very diplomatic. He said, oh, what, what have I done? I, I'm the nothing, man. You guys are the people. You're the ones who've had attained the real victory and the mop-up work. Well, they come and complain to Jephthah about not being called to fight. That's verse 1 of chapter 12. And then look what they say to him. They threaten to burn his house down over him. They're going to burn him in his house. That's the threat. Well, they have threatened the wrong guy. Perhaps they were expecting a more diplomatic response like Gideon gave them. But diplomacy was not in Jephthah's nature. So Jephthah and his forces wipe out the Ephraimites. They begin immediately to fight against them, verse 4. They go after them and they scatter them. And then the Ephraimites that are scattered are trying to get back across the river Jordan to their homeland on the west side of the Jordan. And so what does Jephthah do? He marshals his forces there at the ford where they have to cross, and he sets up a trap to find out who the true Ephraimites are that they might kill them. Look at verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> and the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead would ask him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. It's a pretty good trick. Speech impediment, speech patterns, they couldn't say the word shibboleth, they said sibboleth. It would be like an army from Maine <laughs> trying to find and weed out Texans. And so I go to the border. They got their swords wrong. Are you a Texan? No. Okay, then, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How y'all doing? <laughs> Over. So they set up this trap. They identify the Ephraimites trying to flee, and they annihilate them. Imagine the blood that must have run through the Jordan River. Blood of their fellow Israelites. Blood that flows in the wake of a saving victory against the Ammonites. So in verse 7, we cryptically read, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. No mention of peace. Why not? Because there wasn't any peace. There was internal conflict. The nation is fragmenting even further. Tribe being turned against tribe. And then... In verses 8 through 15 of chapter 12, we see the next three minor ju judges just briefly mentioned, but no peace associated with their rule, their reign either. Ibzan for seven years, Elon for ten years, Abdon for eight years. They all judged Israel as the nation continued to progressively degenerate because of their half-hearted devotion to the true and living God. What are we to understand about it? What lessons does God want us to learn from this? Well, I want to zero in on thinking about practical applications from two perspectives. One perspective I'll call the 30,000-foot view, the flyover. What, what is this? Why is this in the Bible? Why is Jephthah in the Bible? And then the, the second perspective is more street level. What do we learn for our day-to-day -day lives? What are the warnings that come from looking at this judge who was so flawed that God used to accomplish deliverance for his people? Well, first, the flyover, 30,000-foot perspective. 
Jephthah is a faint but undeniable type of Jesus Christ. Who though Jesus was faultless, sinless in every way, was clearly despised and rejected by people. Jesus was born out of a difficult, shameful pregnancy to a woman who had not been married at the time of her being, him being conceived in her womb. He grew up in Nazareth, a town that was despised. It was overlooked, flyover territory in ancient Palestine. And he was the son of a carpenter, so it was thought. He grew up in a carpenter's home. He grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. There was nothing in Jesus that would cause the world to esteem him, to go after him. And yet he was the one that God raised up to save his people from our sins. A very unlikely savior. In the same way that we see Jephthah, the illegitimate child of a prostitute, banished from his family for not being the right kind of person. He anticipates something of Jesus Christ, the true, complete, flawless Savior. But Jephthah also unmistakably demonstrates the power and sovereignty of God's grace in saving and using whomever he will to carry out his purposes in this world. That's a lesson we've seen throughout Judges as we've looked at other flawed judges. But Jephthah reminds us of this. We've seen it looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, how the Apostle Paul theologically explains it to us. Let me read it to you, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, if you're a Christian, you know this is true, right? You know this is true. And if you're not a Christian today, I hope this will land on you as good news. Good news. You think salvation is only for good people? You think salvation is only for those who got their act together, who've cleaned up their lives, who aren't so bad? Only for religious people? Not true. Salvation is for despicable people. It's for people who can't save themselves. Weak, ignorant. Not noble, not strong, not wise. God chooses the foolish of the world to confound the wise. He chooses things that aren't to bring to pass things that will be. And so, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're not reconciled with God, I would call upon you today to go and apply to him, to go and say, God, I've just heard the preacher read this about the kind of people you call. I qualify. I qualify. Save me. Give me Jesus. He'll save you. He'll show mercy to you. He gets pleasure out of showing mercy to the most unlikely candidates of mercy. Well, that's the big flyover perspective. What's the street-level perspective? I think Jephthah warns us as Christians that we all have blind spots, huge blind spots, in our doctrinal and spiritual lives, in our understanding, in our practice. He obviously knew some of the Bible that was available to him, yet he blindly let pagan ideas mix with his biblical understanding. Brothers and sisters, we must cling zealously to everything the Word of God teaches and never compromise anything that we see in Scripture. But at the end of every day, we, we, end of every day we've got to humbly admit that we have blind spots in our understanding. We don't understand everything perfectly. And nobody is immune to this problem. Obviously, if we knew where our blind spots were, we would eliminate them, right? We wouldn't keep them. But the problem is, when our blind spots are exposed to us and we make changes in accordance with God's Word, we know we're still not finished. There's still going to be gaps in our thinking, our understanding. There's still going to be dimensions of our practice that are not in accordance completely with Scripture. What does this mean? It means that we've got to be a people of the book. We've got to be a people that continually seek to live under the authority and scrutiny of God's Word. 
Read God's word. Meditate on God's word. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters who love God's word who can help you to see where you might be out of step with the word of God. Keep yourself under the teaching of God's word consistently, desperately recognizing that you need what God has ordained for our instruction and being trained in ways of righteousness. Jephthah warns us how deeply Yet unwittingly, we can be influenced by ideas and values from the unbelieving cultures around us. I mean, I got to admit to you, I struggled with this passage a lot this week. I was telling the fellow elders, I kind of flip-flopped two or three times in the week about how to understand this vow. But in coming to see it, as I, I come now to, to see it, it's hard to imagine how a man of God Raised up by God to be a judge. A man who Hebrews 11.34 commends to us as a man of faith. How he could be so calloused to the life of his daughter as to make such a vow and then keep such a vow. I look at that and there's, there are questions in my mind. How can this be? How in the world? It's crystal clear to me that he was thinking more like a Canaanite at that point than he was a child of God. Yet as I'm tempted to stand in judgment over Jephthah, the question comes to me, I wonder at what points the same charges can be made against us today. Where are we in our thinking, in our lifestyles, in our choices, more influenced by the world around us than we are by the Word of God? Perhaps we see it more clearly in this area of violence, and so none of us here will probably be tempted to offer up one of our children as a sacrifice. Might be tempted to kill them, but probably not for religious reasons, right? Okay, We're just not going to be tempted to thinking we're serving God by doing this, or we get something for God from God for doing this. But I wonder if the same can be true, be said to be true about our devotion to biblical revelation. In the areas of money, for example, or sex. You see what Christians are saying today in the name of this new sexuality? It happens. It happens. Do you see the way we use money today? I wonder what would happen if we could bring uh, people of God from an ancient time back to today or up to today and let them just look at us and evaluate how we live. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if we could bring Christians from other cultures to us today to spend time with us to evaluate how we spend our money, how we earn our money, how we save our money, how we invest our money, how much money we spend on ourselves. It's actually happened. It's one of the healthiest things God's done for us is to bring Christians from other cultures and just spend time and look at us. Things that we think, you know, we're okay. And yet their reading of the scripture from a completely different cultural context, they shake their heads and wonder. My point, brothers and sisters, is that we need to be careful and be willing to be evaluated and asking the question, at what points have I been more influenced in my values, my thinking by the world than I am by the word? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Brothers and sisters, like Jephthah, like the Israelites of old. We too are in danger of being canonized at all points. And if we're going to successfully resist such powerful influences that we breathe in the cultural air day in and day out, we're going to heed the impassioned plea of the Apostle Paul that I read earlier from Romans 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. He's saying don't be pressed into the mold of the world. Don't let the world shape how you think and live. Rather, be transformed through the renewing of your minds that you may, by testing, discern what is the will of God. Good, acceptable, perfect will. What are you doing to renew your mind? Do you think about the need to regularly renew your mind? So you don't just tip your hat at the Bible, but you say, oh, God, show me this book. Transform me by this book. 
teach me this book, and you keep yourself under the authority and instruction of God's Word. What are you doing? If you're not thinking about it, you can be sure you're being canonized. Even if you are thinking about it, you're not immune from being canonized. We need to make the study of God's Word, the worship of God's, with God's people under the Word a priority in our lives. Finally, Jephthah goes forward as an example to show us how far wrong we can go in our thoughts about God when those thoughts do not come from His Word. He thought he had to bargain with God. He thought that was a sure way to get what he wanted. To bargain with God. And then having made a horrible vow, he thought he could never repent of that vow. I've asked myself the question, I wonder what would have happened with Jephthah if he had come to know just how gracious and merciful God is. If he had come to understand what God saw in heaven when he could not bear his people's sorrows anymore, that he had to act. If he really knew and understood and could rest in the grace of his God. I wonder what would have been different if he knew that this is the God who would give up his son in order to save his people. Brothers and sisters, we do know that. We know the grace and mercy and love of God far better than Jephthah had opportunity to know it. How much more then should we be unwilling to doubt that love, doubt that grace, doubt that mercy when times are difficult or when we see needs that are just beyond our reach? We need to remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not tribulation, not Distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness or sword. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. As Paul says in Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's true. We need to remember it. Not let anything knock us off of this bedrock conviction of God's love and grace and mercy for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Seal it to our hearts today. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.